Okay, hold on. What are you Alan doing? Joaquin show. No, get out of here with that what? trash. I'm supposed to be introducing the show every time. We're not going to be throwing stuff off right now. But you always do the introduction. Exactly. Think, do you uh, hear I my think... voice? Let's have a vote. Majority rule. All right. All right. Uh, let's go. Let's go to the ballots. <laughs> okay. I think. Uh, how many I am voting? How many votes myself, do you have? And I'm voting for my wife. So that's two against one. No, I and have. I, I have. Uh, I've got a lot of neighbors here, and my family all live here. So I'm using all of theirs. So that's about. Yeah. Well, even if I just well, use my family, that's about thirty votes. So. We're we're having a we're having a democracy here. So. It's two against one. Sorry, but you lose. No. So therefore, you have to go by what Jennifer and I propose. Well, I'll just move, or I'll secede from this this union you've I created. A, I have a wonderful, I have a wonderful idea. This could be our subject: the tyranny of the majority. All right, there we go. We'll do it. Well. So you were mentioning you were mentioning something about Greece. What was that again? A little early. We still haven't done our books yet. Okay. Don't jump the why gun. You, why don't you tell tell you what? Let me do my books and movies, and then you can lead in with yours, and then we can we can get into this discussion about the tyranny of the tyranny of the majority. What do you say? Sounds good. But before we do that, let me start us off. Hey, welcome everybody to the Sons of History podcast. I'm Dustin Bass, and I'm Alan Joaquin, and here we go. Hours. Hmm. Good one. Great movie. It talks about what happened in Benghazi on September the 11th, 2012. It almost had a big effect on the uh, 2012 election, uh, but it didn't quite. Yeah. But it almost did. Almost. But what had happened was that there was an annex in Benghazi. It wasn't the embassy, but it was an annex, and it was attacked. And it was blamed on a uh, an Egyptian who created a movie that was considered uh, anti-Muslim or anti-Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we later found out that there was a lot more involved, that this was a planned terror attack. This was not a protest that turned violent. This was, from the very beginning, an attack that was meant to be an attack, meant to kill Americans, and it almost succeeded. Wonderful movie, great acting. Mm-hmm. I, I was uh, I was glued to it, and I've watched it again and again. I and I, I fell in love with the characters, so highly recommend uh, highly recommend watching this movie. Yeah, it was a really good movie. I got to watch that with uh, my brother and I think one of my friends, if I remember correctly. But man, what a! And I'm not a big fan of Michael Bay. I think he overdoes stuff. Um, but this one. Um, this one was really good. And this was, uh, I guess, my first experience with uh, John Krasinski not playing his role in uh, The Office. So he did fantastic. Okay, so uh, my book recommendation is going to be called, coincidentally enough, 13 Days. Now, this book was written by Robert F. Kennedy. He was in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, all the negotiations, all the infighting between
between uh, President John F. Kennedy, his brother, and his cabinet, as well as with the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. President Kennedy at the time, was uh, he had just uh, read a book called The Guns of September or The Guns of August. I can't even remember now. Guns of August. Uh, the Guns of August. He read the book The Guns of August, and he saw how one little spark in the Balkans escalated to a world war. And he was afraid that that same little spark could occur with Cuba that could spread throughout the world. And, and you know, by 1962, there was more at stake because the United States and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. And this came very close to being a third world war. Uh, ironic enough, uh, only 17 years before, Soviet Union and the United States were allies at the close of World War II. And now here they were, they're about to uh, go into war with each other mm -hmm. over little Cuba. But, um, you know, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff were pushing for war. They really felt that uh, an all-out attack at the very beginning would be the best way to go because if there were nuclear weapons, they had to be destroyed immediately before anything was launched. And uh, John Kennedy didn't want to go down as, uh, you know, America's Tojo, meaning, you know, the uh, Japanese premier who attacked Pearl Harbor. And he also was, again, afraid of uh, how a tiny little war in the Caribbean could escalate into a world war. And, and it would have, because, as John Kennedy did state, an attack from Cuba on the United States would be equivalent of an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. Hmm. Very dramatic. They did make a movie of it, by the way. Yeah. Um, came out about 10 years ago. Yeah, I remember watching that movie. Um, I think it was about 15 years ago that it came out. 13 Days. Uh, I watched it with the girl... Um, who eventually became my longtime girlfriend, no longer anymore. Hello, I'm single. Anyways, that's my cross to bear. Um, but that movie, while watching it with her, felt like 13 days. Uh, so wow. you might as well. <laughs> so I don't even know if it was if the movie was any good. Because I was biz. All right. That's all I got for that part. <laughs> you like that? You like my... Uh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like when you come up with stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry, Alan. Is that, sorry. Why, is that why you're still single? I think so. I'm pretty certain that's why. Because I couldn't take 13 days seriously. Yeah, great, great movie. Was it good? I mean, had, oh yeah, I thought yeah. No, I mean, there was. Uh, I remember that there were a couple of other movies. Uh, actually, I do remember a movie called uh, The Missiles of October, which came out when I was a kid. This, this, obviously, they put a little bit more money into the production. I think The Missiles of October was a um, made-for-TV movie. So oh, this like one, it, was, it had, Kevin, had Kevin Costner in it. It had a much bigger budget. Very nice. All right. Uh, well, here is my selection, or here are my selections for a movie and a book. This movie is one of the top 100 movies, as I had told you a while back, a couple of weeks ago. I am going through American Film Institute's top 100 movies, every one of them except Clockwork Orange, because I'm not nuts out of my mind. Um, 
So I watched this one for the first time and I was a little hesitant because it's a musical. And I do like musicals typically whenever I watch it, but I think it's just the idea of it being a musical. I am anticipating it not being that enjoyable. But while I was watching this movie, I was thinking, why has it taken me so long to watch this movie? And it is Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever watched it, but really enjoyable movie um, and just very well done. Um, the the singing, the dancing, and all that jazz, if you will. Uh, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun to watch. Gene Kelly's awesome. Um, all right. My book selection is, interestingly enough, playing off of what you had mentioned earlier about Greece is Plato's Republic. I uh, finished this the other night, and I highly recommend our readers check out this book. Plato's Republic is based off of Socrates' discussions. Um, and actually, the book that I have is Plato's Five Dialogues, um, and the very end is uh, Plato's Republic. Now, Plato's Republic, book number 10, I believe, he goes through um, all the different types of governments that are more or less of used by people, I guess, back in those days, about 2,500 years ago. Um, oligarchy, democracy, tyranny. So he gives his viewpoints on all of these, and he thinks that democracy is actually a very bad idea. Although his view on democracy is slightly different than how we practice it here in the States. But one of the things that Plato does... Um, mention is that through a democracy, he saw the death of Socrates. So um, I wanted to sort of lead off with that as well, because ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking about a topic that's very hot right now, and that is the Electoral College. And before, how... we, before we do, can I throw something in real quick? Go for it. You know, uh, obviously, uh, Plato's instructor was Socrates. Mm-hmm. Do you know who his most famous student was? Plato's famous student? Correct. Aristotle. Correct. And, and who you know Aristotle's who you know famous, whose famous uh, student people. Aristotle was? <laughs> yes. Do I know who Aristotle was? No, I said, do you know whose famous student Aristotle's was? Yes, I was about to ask you that because yes. I know that question. Alexander the Great. There you go. Yep. Which is very interesting because I didn't know that until um, relatively recently um, that, um, and I think it was maybe reading this book, um, Plato's Five Dialogues, um, that mentioned that Alexander the Great was Aristotle's student. So, yep. yeah, very interesting because everybody, I think everybody thinks the, the three that go to hand to hand is like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and it stops there. And it's like, oh, no. It actually extends much, much greater than, than that. It, it ends at, at Alexander the Great. So, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so you're going to do your lead on. Go ahead. We're going to be talking about the Electoral College. It's gotten more traction here lately, uh, especially with one of the recent uh, Democratic uh, candidates for President Elizabeth Warren saying we need to do away with the Electoral College. Uh, and so this has sparked more conversation on a conversation that 
originated really uh, with our founding. Uh, so one of the things that I did want to mention uh, was in the Federalist Papers, our founding fathers mention Greece and they mention elect the Electoral College and and how everything is you know the Confederate republics. Uh, so Madison actually mentioned this in Federalist Paper number fifty five. And he says, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever character composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob. Now, Alan, I know that you have spent a large chunk of your time studying the history of Greece. Can you give us some background and some history on sort of what Madison is talking about, but how uh, democracy was utilized in ancient Greece. Yeah, of course, I'd love to. Now, in uh, there, there were there was different ways of thinking back during the uh, classical Greek times. Uh, Athens led the democracy movement, and Sparta led the oligarchy movement. Now, during those times, you know, the uh, Sparta was was run by, uh, they had two kings and they had uh, ephors who were, you know, they, they came in for a certain amount of time period, whereas the kings were uh, hereditary. In Ab, you know, and, you know, that, that's how Sparta did. And, and they would have assemblies and whoever was the loudest would uh, would get their way. But now in Athens, they would, they would have voting. And it was basically you would have the people show up at the assembly and they would they would vote. Now, Greece was split, or it wasn't called Greece at that time, um, but you know in, in those days it was split between those who supported the oligarchy and those who supported democracy. So when the uh, thirty-one year Pele, or I'm sorry, when the twenty-seven year Peloponnesian War took place, there was those who sided with Sparta those who were against democracy, and then there were those who wanted democracy who, who sided with Athens. There was a back and forth going on during the 27-year war where people would vote for things that went against the oligarchs in terms of their land or their freedom. They would basically, if, if a majority ruled, they would take away your life and liberty. Because they voted for it. They felt that uh, with a democracy, we are justified to doing these things. Hmm. So there were quite a lot of civil wars and back and forth uh, in, in many of the cities. There, some cities would start off as a, as a tyranny or an oligarchy, and then they'd revert to democracy, and then they'd go back to oligarchy, and then they'd go back to democracy. And whoever was in power would take it out on the other side when they were in charge. But with the democracy, the founding fathers learned that people could vote their way to take whatever they want from their opponents. Right. And I and I believe that this is where much of the the, the theory of the tyranny of majority came into came into the picture. And it, it really was a back and forth. I mean, there were massacres that took place. As soon as the democracy would win, they would massacre rich landowners hmm. because, well, it. It's our right to. We voted on it, that type of thing. Yeah. And I think the founding fathers knew this, and they were afraid that uh, the United States could, could could go down that very path. 
So is it true that one of the ideas behind the Founding Fathers creating the Electoral College is to um, stave off civil war um, between the colonies or between the states? Well, you, you, one thing you have to understand is the, 13, the original 13 colonies were like 13 different countries. Right. We were not... We did not view ourselves as Americans. We viewed ourselves as uh, as uh, servants of the king. We were we were British citizens, but each colony ran things a certain way. Uh, a lot of it was based on religion. Uh, you had uh, you know you had the Massachusetts Bay Colony was Puritans and Pilgrims. They were Congregationalists. Uh, uh, Maryland, you had Catholics. Um, Pennsylvania was where the Quakers and the Mennonites uh, ruled. So each colony ruled a certain way. They wanted to keep it that way. The Virginians were, you know, they, they looked at things as we want Virginia to be uh, an agrarian society, very feudal. If you'll notice, Virginia doesn't have uh, large cities like Massachusetts or New York does. Mm-hmm. Virginians wanted it that way. They, they liked to rule things in a very chivalric, uh, feudal society. So they, none of them wanted to give up their autonomy. Now, in 1754, when it became apparent that the French were becoming a threat to the 13 English colonies, uh, delegates, including Benjamin Franklin, met at Albany. And uh, they came up with what was called the Albany Plan of Union. It was rejected. Now, you know, Benjamin Franklin, you know, he, he looked at this and he thought that, you know, it, it was basically let us unite as 13 colonies mm-hmm. and we'll have something similar to a president, but everything would be under the whims of the king or parliament. And we can put up a united front against France. Well, the 13 colonies were not in favor of it. Most of the people were not in favor of it because, especially the smaller colonies, because they didn't want to give up their autonomy. They ruled a certain way, and they wanted to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, that, you know, that's what people have to kind of understand. That there wasn't this thought about, we're going to create an America. That idea did not come about until Thomas Paine came into the picture and brought up the idea and reinforced the idea that we need to be our own country. Yeah. Prior to that, we were subjects of the king. We, they loved the king. They, they, they liked being an autonomous little colony and you know where their allegiance was to the king. But again, they wanted to run things their own way. So having to become a nation, having to uh, give up your power to a constitution, they had to come up with a reason to why the smaller colonies would give up much of their autonomy to have one national leader. The Electoral College, back in those days, Virginia, New York, and, and Massachusetts were the big colonies. Right. The other colonies did not want to be ruled by someone out of Boston or New York City. So to, leave, to, to uh, take away their fears that, you know, that those colonies that those states were going to run everything the electoral college was one of the suggestions that came up to help them out 
to to make them to make them more willing to give up their autonomy for a greater good. Right, and I sort of see this um, the electoral college as a compromise between majority rule and equality. Yeah, I mean there were a lot of compromises that had to take place in right. order to get the thirteen colonies to come together and form a perfect union. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, um, you know, uh, there were some colonies that didn't like the idea that uh, Rhode Island, with their two senators, would mm-hmm. have the same power as New York with their two senators. Right. The people in New York didn't think that that was fair. Right. Well, the people of Rhode Island didn't like the idea that there would be so many representatives coming out of Massachusetts or New York or Pennsylvania basically leaving Rhode Island with practically no power. Right. So compromises had to be made in order to make everybody happy. And the Electoral College was one of the things that came out to make the smaller states happier. One of the things that I wanted to, to bring up, because you, you did mention how the 13 colonies were very different. Um, the uni- you know Benjamin Franklin uh, sort of bringing up this idea to, to unify them all into one and they were like no we're not going to do that um, even Madison mentions that in Federalist Paper 10 where he, he says a landed interest a manufacturing interest a mercantile interest a moneyed interest with many lesser interests grow up of necessity in civilized nations and divide them into different classes, actuated by different sentiments and views. The regulation of these various and interfering interests forms the principal task of modern legislation and involves the spirit of party and faction in the necessary and ordinary operations of the government. And I think that's a really uh, well said, obviously, it's James Madison, so it's well said, but bringing out the fact that there are so many different interests that lie in the 13 colonies, and that is only translated into the 50 states. You look at the 50 states, and there are different laws, like you said. There are different views. There are different economies um, within each state. So there's a lot of, of differences. And to an extent, like the one our one country almost feels like 50 different countries, depending on, you know, you can go to, to state to state, and they're all, they've all got a different feel to them. Um, which is which is very very interesting, uh, but Madison does a good job of talking about look, every, all these states or all these colonies, um, they have different viewpoints. They di- they have different interests to them, and so he's saying that the spirit of party and faction is just going to be involved in there. But we you have to form government in in a way to make sure that you sort of restrict things to where it doesn't get out of control. One of the things that you had mentioned a second ago as far as Rhode Island and New York City, Hamilton addresses in Federalist Paper 22, talking about each state having an equal weight and how just, look, that's not going to happen. And he says, two-thirds of people could never relinquish their authority to one-third of the people. And so he gets the idea of we can't have where all these states have an equal say in what goes on because there was a real fear of minority rule as well, which you can, you can look into, uh, listeners, you can look into in the Federalist Papers talking about minority rule, how 
everyone would be subject to one person. Because if you went with uh, unanimous rule, where everybody had to agree, you would never get anywhere. And it would be, you know, uh, take, for instance, when the Declaration of Independence was put into place. Uh, It was 12 said yes, and New York abstained. I mean, what if it was to the point where like, well, until New York comes on board completely and says yes, we can't do anything. Imagine how that would be. That would be, you know, who knows? We, we may have never gotten to where, where we are today. Um, so Federalist Paper number eight, Hamilton references uh, Greece and that whole issue. Listeners, you may want to check out Federalist Paper number nine by Hamilton as well because he gives a lot of points that our founding fathers did a really good job of studying history. Um, they took the thoughts of you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, but they also utilize in Federalist Paper number nine, uh, Montesquieu, uh, the French philosopher, um, who talked a lot about the Confederate Republic. So he's bringing out a lot of points that Montesquieu had on what he calls the Confederate Republic, uh, which is what America is. It's a Confederate of states, but a republic, an extended republic. Going on to what Madison says in uh, Federalist Paper uh, number 10, he says that the federal constitution, and this goes back to bringing it all under control. Like he was saying, there's various different interests. There are so many different interests within, uh, from state to state. He says the federal constitution forms a happy combination in this respect. The great and aggregate interest being referred to the national, the local, and particular to the state legislatures. It's interesting that he says the happy combination and not the perfect combination. Because everybody can agree, even with the founding, that the Constitution was not perfect. But Benjamin Franklin even said, this is not perfect, but I can't think of anything else in history that comes close to it being as perfect as it is. Yeah, I mean, there was uh, there was an English Bill of Rights uh, that that they that they did look at, uh, but you had a king running the show over there. Mm-hmm. Here we have a republic. Here we have, you know, we we get to elect our our, our president, and you know, I think that that's that's what made them feel better of the idea that you know the United States is going to be a republic rather than a, uh, a kingdom or uh, the type of monarchy that uh, that you know that the United Kingdom has even though they 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 do use a parliament and even though they do have a form of a constitution over there but again what people have to keep in mind is, is that when the constitution and when the declaration of, of independence were written um, the, the, the different colonies and the and what later became the different states, they ruled. They had their own laws. They they did things differently, and they they did not like the idea. You know, the, the people of Georgia or South Carolina did not like the idea that someone from New York or Massachusetts was going to tell them what to do. Mm-hmm. And so there had to be a lot of compromise. You know, you know the, the, the delegates to uh, Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, I mean, they met in secret. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but um, they, they had to 
uh, as you said, the happy compromise. Yeah, I think it was uh, almost an entire spring and summer uh, that they were in in the Constitutional Hall, as or Independence Hall, as we call it. Um, and they shut the shutters. They shut everything out and deliberated until they came to uh, sort of a conclusion on the Constitution. Am I correct? Uh, that is correct. And not only that, but it, it took many years before all the states uh, ratified right. the Constitution. It, it wasn't, uh, I think there was a majority within two years. It took mm-hmm. two years for, uh, what was it, nine of them, I think, uh, I, th- I think nine of them had to pass it. Yeah. And, but, and uh, it took a, it took a, yeah, it took a long time for everybody to get on board. Yeah. So, so it's not one of those things that just it just happened. And and the reason we're bringing this up is that we want to really bring across the the fact that yes, people are saying we need to get rid of the electoral college. We need to just have it to where um, one vote, you know, everybody's vote counts um and it's just it's a one for one it's across the nation and that's how we're going to elect the president and we're bringing up how in the past in history these this this idea of pure democracy uh just is not a good idea in it in a grand scale and and more or less there is good argument for you know the whole straight democracy as far as voting um voting straight democracy to get a president into office instead of an electoral college. It's not that, oh, you know, there is no argument that you can't even have this argument. Look, it's it's an argument. Um, and there's going to be differences of opinions uh, for everything. But one of the main things, and I, I really encourage, look, listeners, if, you, if you're not ever going to read any of the Federalist Papers, but, you know, maybe a couple of them, I would highly encourage you to at least read Federalist Paper number 10. It's it's Madison's first one. Um, but he, he says this about the pure democracy. Um, he says, a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens, and we'll skip down, he says, there is nothing to check the inducements to sacrifice the weaker party or an obnoxious individual. Hence it is that such democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, like you had mentioned a second ago, Alan, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. So there is a real um, concern from the founding fathers that, look, we can't be doing um, the pure democracy in everything that we do. Um, and let's go ahead and move on to some of the concerns that we have, uh, the sons of history, with um, doing away with the Electoral College and just going um, majority rule. Well, there, there are a couple things. I, I did want to mention that the only way that a pure democracy could work in mm-hmm. this country is if we started off as just a regular republic, not a federal republic, where it was one state right. and everyone was the same, one religion. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that's not the case. You exactly. Know, you would have certain, to eliminate all 50 states. You would have to eliminate all 50 states. different colonies for a reason. Right. All right. Now, the 50 states and uh, the uh, District of Columbia 
have different electoral voting laws. Mm-hmm. Um, 18 states currently do not have early voting. Mm-hmm. That's going to be one of the issues. Um, so if every state if every state had exactly the same same type of electoral laws, uh, that would help in the efforts of those that are against electoral college. Um, but but one of the things that I think, in my opinion, is is the biggest problem. Well, okay, let me, actually, before I get to that, um, I want to I do want to mention California in terms of the electoral laws. Mm-hmm. California, the way they do things is differently from Texas. In the state of Texas. The, the, the Democrats have primaries and the Republicans have primaries. And when you go and vote, you will see a Democrat and you will see a Republican unless there are just so many uh, Democrats in one precinct or one, one area that a Republican is not going to even bother run, running for an election or vice versa where – there are just so many people that will be considered conservative in, in an area that you're not going to see a Democrat run for office. They're, mm-hmm. they're not going to waste their time. So when you go vote in, in Texas, you if you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, you're going to see a candidate. Or if you have, or if there's an independent, you will see it. But California has written their laws differently. The two biggest vote-getters are going to end up on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So if, let's say, you have... Um, you know, in, in the primaries, you have a thousand people voted for Democrat one, eight hundred people voted for Democrat two, and seven hundred people voted for a Republican. Well, it's not going to be Democrat one versus the Republican. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Democrat one versus Democrat two. Yeah. Okay. Now people will say, okay, well, you know, I mean, the Democrats are going to win anyway, so what do you care? Well, the problem is, is that. If you, if, if you don't have a Republican on the ballot and you are a Republican, you're, you're just not going to even bother voting. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the point? Just so you could vote for the two Democrats that are running for Senate? There's, there's no point. And so that has hurt Republican turnout in the state of California. Yeah, and so, interestingly that's, enough, that's, though, if you, if you think about it, uh, California actually performs that according to how Article 2 of the Constitution suggests to vote for the president. The top um, electoral college vote-getters um, are the ones that um, will be you know, elected president. Yeah, yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right. That, that, I think that was the justification uh, for having that method in, in the state of California. Now, um, the state of Wyoming has three electoral votes. I mm-hmm. think North Dakota, you know, states like that all have only three electoral votes. California, I think, is what fifty-five electoral votes. Uh, well, yeah, I can't. I can't remember. It's uh, it's in the fifties. Here is the problem with having a uh, using the popular vote and popular vote only. There is cases of ballot stuffing. So if you have a certain precinct, let's say in California, or you have a certain precinct in, let's say, uh, North Dakota, which usually votes uh, Republican, if whether they ballot stuff by 1,000 votes or whether they ballot stuff by 50,000 votes, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is they only get 
three electoral votes. Same as California, whether they ballot stuff by, say, 50,000 or whether they ballot stuff by two, three million, they are still going to only have 55 electoral votes. Yeah. So, stuffing, and, and there is a motivation by some precincts stuffing the ballot if, and I mean this, if we use a popular vote to determine who the president is. What we saw in California in the year 2000. Imagine, and and in fact, you mean, you uh, mean in Florida, the, the state elect the state elections for the Senate and the uh, and the governor in in uh, Florida. Yeah, you mean year. you mean you mean Florida in two thousand. No, 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 Florida two thousand. But do you remember how in? Broward I know, but County you said again? you said California in two thousand no, instead I'm, of Florida. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I meant to say Florida. Yeah, Florida of two thousand, as well as Florida of twenty eighteen, mm-hmm. where. There were recounts and recounts, and we have to go. We have to go through every ballot. Now imagine doing that nationwide, because oh, you've got some, you have some uh, democratically leaning uh, precincts or, or heavily uh, Republican leaning precincts where where they stuffed the ballots. Yeah, and you know what's and, funny is that even Nancy Pelosi in two thousand said uh, made the comment. Can you imagine if we had to do a recount nationwide? Oh, it. it would be a fiasco. I mean, be the laughing be so much hostilities. I mean, it literally could lead to a civil war. Yeah. I don't think people quite understand that something like that could actually happen around mm-hmm. here. I mean, it won't be like the civil war we saw in 1860s, but it would be a civil war similar to to something you see uh, like in Spain in 1936, or you might have a state that just said, "Okay, enough is enough. Yeah, uh, we want out of this. we want out of this union. We 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 have." irreconcilable differences between us and say California might say that between them and the state of state of Texas yeah but I, I agree the the idea of ballot stuffing is um, it's 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 not something that is done away with because you have voter fraud all the time um, I was looking through um, the Heritage Foundation has done a good job of pointing out voter fraud state by state Um uh, there's so many I didn't even read through. And the thing is, is uh, I think a lot of times uh, party members of whatever party, they say, well, it's always the Democrats who are, you know, doing voter fraud or it's always Republicans who are doing voter fraud. Look, it's, it's both parties that, that uh, conduct themselves. Um, and I don't want to say both parties, but a person within a party trying to get an upper hand, maybe even a, in, even in local government, uh, you'll, you'll see this. Um, so it's not so much like, oh, well, I trust my party over this party. That's a that's sort of a, a dangerous thing. Look, it's people. It's people that, that try to try to get the upper hand all the time in, in various instances. But the Electoral College deters ballot stuffing because, like you said, it does cap it. It puts a cap on on uh, whatever it is that you do, whether you whether you win in in cheating with ballot stuffing. Well, you only get this many um, electoral uh, votes anyways. Uh, so I, I agree with you. If a state is guaranteed red or blue, then there is no incentive to ballot stuff, really, uh, since the results and the allotted number is practically secured before the election begins. You already know, like you said, you already know more or less what is going to happen in certain areas, in certain cities, in certain states. Um, and... Here's what bothers me as well 
is people like Elizabeth Warren who want to do away with the Electoral College, which is a fundamental aspect of the country, of the Constitution. Here's something to, to point out when whenever you whenever listeners, whenever somebody says, well, uh, Republicans, um, they're they're all about, you know, big government or, you know, Democrats are all about big government, whatever it is that I want to point out that Washington, D.C. does get um, a say in, you know, they don't get senators, but they do get electoral votes. And they have never, since they've been able to, they have never voted for a Republican. It has always been a massive landslide for a Democrat, um, which is very interesting. That's about 60 or 70 years, um, if not more. I think Eisenhower did the best. And even that was, it was still, quote unquote, a landslide uh, for the Democratic Party. Um so that is that's an interesting thing. Like you take Washington D.C. for instance, and you see how close a lot of these these uh, these races are. Um, they can be just decided by a few hundred thousand votes. I mean, this one with the majority of uh, the popular vote uh, was decided by about three million, and that's you know look. I know people say, well, that's that's uh, a, a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. But when you when you have a country as large as ours, uh, you have to sort of put that into perspective. But think about this. Washington, D.C. is the most blue area in America. Like they are always nonstop going to be voting for it to put a Democrat in office. I want to mention something real quick on that. But I'm just saying like, they have almost a million people and they have 770,000 people in the DC area. It's like that just in itself, if they did ballot stuffing just with Washington DC, because you know, definitely look, if it's a landslide, if it's like the, the numbers that 70, 30, 80, 20, it's not going to be something that is a surprise to anybody. Cause it's going to say, look, history has shown us, that it's not even close in Washington, D.C. So ballot stuffing, it could be something that is, like, nobody's going to notice this. Well, one other thing I was going to mention, that uh, there have been two 49-state landslides that I remember, at least in my lifetime. 1972, when uh, Richard Nixon mm-hmm. won 49 of the 50 states. Right. Um, against McGovern. Uh, the only state that went to McGovern was Massachusetts, but there was Washington, D.C. that voted for that voted with uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Twelve years later, 1984, Ronald Reagan versus Walter Mondale. Again, it was one state, the same was Minnesota, and Washington, D.C. Yeah. In, in both 49 state landslides, Washington, D.C. voted with the losing party, yeah, the Democrat, the Democrat in that election. So, I mean, that should tell us something that D.C., and I guess it sort of is like, well, duh, that sort of makes sense, but D.C. is all about the Democrat Party, which Democrats should sort of pay attention to. It's like, do you, do you like 
government intrusion do you like big government because Washington DC is where you know the federal government is located you know so sort of put that together I don't really know how to phrase that any more than how obvious it already is I wanted to mention that pure democracy from the founding in our constitution was only ever supposed to be at the minimal level which is the house of representatives you yeah, because the senators back then, they were not voted by the people. No, that was changed in 1912 and 1913 um, by the 17th Amendment because the senators were actually selected within the state legislatures. Um, they were the ones who put the two um, and said, look, you guys, you two are going to be able to best represent our state. You'll be going to Washington, D.C. Well, a progressive movement took place and they eliminated that and, you know, voted for the 17th Amendment. Listen, there were issues, of, you know, that were affecting how senators were being put into place. Um, but like we said earlier and like the Founding Fathers already knew, there, this system is not perfect. You're not ever going to get a perfect system because we're not perfect people and you have to deal with a ton of people. So now what bothers me is that the Democrats want to put all three elections into pure and a pure democracy election. That's scary to me. We do have a system that's put in place and it, you know, it does prevent as you mentioned, the tyranny of the majority and the tyranny of the minority. And I think, you know, if, uh, if we were to lessen the power of the presidency, and I know I've gone on this, uh, this tangent before, where if we were to decrease the power of the presidency to begin with, then I think people on both sides would, who are on the losing side would be more willing to accept the, uh, the elections. Mm-hmm. But as of right now, the power of the presidency is so strong that um, the, uh, the the federal judiciary is going to be determined by the president. The Supreme Court is going to be determined by the president. Yeah. The veto power. There's so many things that now hang in the balance on each side that both sides feel like they have to win that presidency. Mm-hmm. If they don't win that presidency, then their way of life is going to be undone yeah and neither side want that you know like you have you have the abortion issue you have the gun issue you have the um the the cultural issue in terms of uh, illegal aliens mm-hmm. um how how you know immigration can turn america from what it was into something globalist in the future by putting that much power in washington dc that much power in the presidency People are now going to have more at stake with the presidency, and at that point, that's where they want to win no matter what, no matter what it takes. The ends will justify the means, and that's one of the things that I'm afraid of, and which is one of the reasons why I have advocated for a very long time uh, more state rights and less uh, in de- the decentralization of power in D.C. And there is an argument out there, and this is something that I, I don't agree with. There is an argument that, well, 
as of right now with the Electoral College, these the, the candidates that are running for the president's office, for they are only going to the swing states. They're only focusing their real time and energy on the swing states. And it's like, well, these are actually like microcosms of America because it's really tight knit race. So you want to be able like that in itself is a version of reaching across the aisle. The Republicans and the Democrats want to come and to these swing states and say, look, I know it's tight here. I know it could go either way, but I want you to know that I am, look, I'm a Democrat, but I am also going to take care of, you know, the Republican values as well. Or I'm going to reach across the aisle and, and do things that are that are beneficial to the to the Republicans and, and vice versa with the Republican candidate coming in. Like, it forces you to care about both sides. And so it's a president, a presidential candidate has to go in and be center left or center right to where, look, I've got to win. If I'm a Democrat, I've got to go win some of those Republicans or some of those conservatives that are on the fence and vice versa with the Republican. I've got to go in and win some of those Democrats that may be like, well, I don't really like where the Democrat party is heading. You know, do I stay on? I go in and I go into these swing states and say, look, here's what we need to do and let's do this together. But with the majority rule, Candidates can simply go to, you know, California or Texas and go to these cities or states that it's mass population like New York, um, Florida, Texas, California. Go to these places where it's mass population and say, hey, let's let's go ahead. And what ends up happening is that the complaint that is today that, OK, you're going to the swing states because because it's 50 50, um, you're ignoring actually more of the country if you were to go with a popular majority with the with the majority rule you would actually ignore more of the states because you would go to where the mass populations are and say all right i'm going to spend all my time in california if you're a democrat or new york or if you're a republican you're going to spend all your time in texas or florida so that's something that as much as Democrats right now are, are, that's one of their arguments. It's like you're arguing for something that will actually be worse, become worse if you got rid of the Electoral College. You think that's where we're headed? I don't think so because I don't think that an amendment will take place to remove the Electoral College. And I was listening to a podcast the other day and it, and it brought up a valid point. Um, I can't remember what podcast it was, We the People or something like that. But they said, do you think it is a good idea? It may have been the Hillsdale Dialogues, actually. Um, do you think that this being brought up, this whole um, let's get rid of the Electoral College is good for the country? And they are sort of making a comparison to, well, actually, they didn't even say it. I made the comparison mentally. Comparing it to whenever Bernie Sanders says free health care, free college, eliminate the student loan debt, you know, and make and making these these ideas or these suggestions as if that's a possibility of happening. It's not good for the country because it gets people in an uproar about something that is just not going to happen. And I think Elizabeth Warren is is taking this stance 
to say, I care about every single vote. So she can at least verbally say something like that, despite the fact it's like, well, whether you care about every single vote or not, which I think every presidential candidate, you know, really does, it's throwing out something that is a false hope that can get people in an, in an uproar and sometimes even in, in a violent uproar and say, yeah, let's get, a, let's undo all of this and let's get rid of this. And like, but you don't understand how, one, how an amendment has taken place, you know? So do you understand how hard that is and how impossible it is? It's sort of like Bernie Sanders with his, you know, free healthcare, free college and all this stuff. Like, do you understand that that's not going to happen? And all you're doing is feeding people a false hope so you can get votes for you on something that you will never, ever, ever be able to deliver on. I, I do hope that, um, you know, with the upcoming election next year that, uh, that we can we can find some unity. Maybe I would like to see a clear-cut winner where someone wins both the, uh, the popular vote and the electoral vote so that we won't have so much controversy like we did this, this last election and in 2000. Right. I mean, I personally, I personally don't see that happening next year. I really don't, um, because I do see that California and New York um, are going to go pretty much straight, you know, Democrat. So that in itself will make the difference, and that's what I see is like that's not fair. You can't have it to where the large states, and we go all the way back to the beginning. We can't, you can't have the large states dictating where the entire country is going. What's more important? The states have the sovereignty and then they have the people who get to vote. That's why it's built the way it is. So you don't have two states directing the other 48. I agree. I agree. All right, Alan, where can they find us? They can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. YouTube, and www.thesonsofhistory.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, look, guys, um, if you ever have anything that you would like to discuss, uh, please feel free um, to reach out to us uh, via any of those outlets, and we'll do our best to do our research and discuss that topic. So we will talk to you all later. You all have a wonderful week. And by the way, Alan, not sure if you knew this, but this was episode number 25. We are a quarter of a century of 100 of... Yeah, my math isn't very good. We're 25 in. We're quarter of a... Yeah, kind of like quarter of a century. We did one a year at the uh, quarter of a century. There you go. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I would just want to say I hope uh, I hope everybody thought of this as a thought-provoking episode and... Um, it's a lot to think of. And go out there and vote, but get yourself educated before you do that. Please do. See you later. That is a whole... <laughs>